Hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's an overcast morning on Brighton Beach in Sussex, England. The year is 1790. It's your first official day on the job, working under the famous Martha Gunn, and you bet you're nervous. The job of a dipper is important, and it's tough work. You've got to get it just right if you are to impress Mrs. Gunn and continue working with the old, established Brighton dippers. There are some 20 dippers on the team right now, all eager to prove they have what it takes to be accepted into a lucrative career with the potential for lifelong job security. One of your fellow dippers gestures for you to follow her. You oblige. The beach is just over the crest of a hill, and as you follow your new colleague, you begin to smell the ocean before you see it. The scent and taste of the salty air invigorates your senses, and you feel momentarily peaceful. But as the hill crests, revealing the sprawling sea and beach below, a knot forms in your gut. First one, it's all you your colleague says, pointing a finger at a blocky wooden structure on wheels in the near distance. You don't have to guess at what it is. It's the first time you've seen one, but you know exactly what it is. It's where you'll be spending most of your day, and if it goes well, all your other days at work from here on out. It is a bathing machine. Hey everyone, Karen Bellinger here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines the human experience and society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. On today's episode, we're talking with author and seaside historian Dr. Catherine Ferry about the job of the seaside dipper. More specifically, the members of the old established Brighton Dippers, who worked under the truly fascinating Martha Gunn, an 18th century entrepreneurial powerhouse largely responsible for the legacy of this somewhat peculiar career. We'll explore a time and place in history when going to the beach was a very different affair than it is today. A time when women and men had separate sections of the beach and distinct bathing hours, and when several bone-chilling dips into the sea a day could indeed keep the doctor away. Let's dive in. No pun intended. Okay, yes, it was. Catherine is a historian who loves to be beside the seaside. She earned her PhD in Victorian architectural history at Cambridge University, and since falling in love with beach huts, has become a leading expert on the buildings and traditions of the Great British Seaside Holiday. Along with several books on that subject, Catherine has published on Victorian homes, 1950s kitchens, the little-known history of bungalows, and the official history of Butland's chain of British seaside resorts. Her latest book is Seaside 100, the history of the British seaside in 100 objects. The Dippers apparently are number four on that list, as, as a sneak preview. This book is the culmination of 20 years of research on the history, culture, and architecture of the seaside. And just to mix things up, Catherine's currently finishing a book on a 19th century order of Anglican nuns, and next plans to tackle the social history of plastic. She's a well-respected lecturer and frequently contributes to television and radio programs. You'll find Catherine on Twitter and Instagram at Seaside Ferry and also on Facebook. Catherine, we're so excited to have you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted to be here, Karen. So I'm going to ask you to start us off by giving us an English Regency period 101. I, I, I mean, surely there's more to it than Jane Austen and Mr. Darcy and that wet shirt. Um, not, not sure I can imagine more, but no. 
the wet Enlighten shirt is, us. <laughs> yeah, the wet shirt is kind of a popular place to start and what a place to start. But um, I think just the kind of Jane Austen aesthetic is kind of a really good way into understanding the Regency because the Regency was a time of literary and artistic endeavour and um, lots of kind of new trends in British architecture and fashion and politics culture. So we're talking about at its slimmest, the, the Regency really is quite a short period between 1811 and 1820. And that is the period when King George III, well known for his madness, um, that's when he was incapable of ruling the country. And so his, young, his eldest son, the Prince of Wales, became um, a proxy for him. And he was the Prince Regent. And so that period was the Regency. But actually, okay. the things that are going on in culture and literature, etc., at that time, they don't just, you know, they don't immediately start in 1811 and neither do they finish in 1820 so the time span kind of the the term is used to describe a, a longer period so we're talking from sort of the 18 the 1790s rather to the accession of queen victoria in 1837 so that's a bit of king george iii's reign Britain is at war for a lot of this period with Napoleonic France so international politics are changing a lot at this period um, but uh, the, the Prince Regent is a key patron of the arts and culture. So there is this real burgeoning of sort of cultural achievement. It's been spoken of as sort of mini Renaissance in British oh. cultural life, actually. Okay. Um, the thing was that the Prince Regent was spending a lot of money that wasn't his. <laughs> um, so, you know, so he got himself into debt and uh, was spending a lot of the Exchequer's money. But we, we got some good things out of it, you know, um, <laughs> in terms of our stately homes and uh, Windsor Castle and the, the Brighton Royal Pavilion. And Britain was on the cusp of really the, the Industrial Revolution was already underway. So a lot of the things that we identify as being from that period, steam technology and and um, the kind of new materials coming into buildings and and just the whole technological revolution that's that's happening during this period before it really sort of takes off it throughout the 19th century and and one of those key things um, was steam printing, which sort of opened up the way for um, mass literature for novels to be published and serialized in newspapers and so sort of Jane Austen comes out of or her popularity comes out of these kind of technological innovations as well but at the same time there's a massive gap between rich people and poor people and the the literary the, the stories and the, the literature and the press and, and the kind of the, the families and the characters that we identify from Jane Austen, they are the elite and the poor people are learning about these. Um, they're becoming having this sort of currency and creating important fashions and the seaside is one of those fashions. So Catherine, this is clearly a time of immense social technological change. Who was the seaside for as a as a leisure venue at this time well i think you've got it in that that word leisure because actually working people were working all the time so they they didn't have the potential to escape um to go to the seaside or any of the other sort of what we might consider holiday destinations which would be sort of inland spas think of places like bath and and the jane austen characters being sent off to um enjoy the the whirl of fashionable society there um the seaside was an elite destination in part because it was very difficult to get to we're talking pre-railways right okay so so you have to go by you could potentially go by boat to some places but somewhere like um brighton you would have to go by stagecoach and it would take about six hours oh on, that, that takes away the romance right there yeah, yeah <laughs> on terrible roads um uh, so yes it's it's not an easy place to get to and then once you get there you have to pay to stay for your accommodation so it's a costly venture going to the seaside and so it really is for the elite only yeah okay so not a quick day trip not just a quick dip your toes and and come back out refreshed um Wow. Okay. Uh, so who were these dippers and how did they fit into the experience of those who began visiting the sea at this time? 
So it was actually back in the 17th century that people started realizing that there might be more to this, the coast and the seaside than just fishing and trading. Oh, and smuggling. I should, I should say that as well. Um, makes it very romantic, the like idea pirates? of smugglers. Pirates. Well, kind of, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, barrels of rum being brought ashore and hidden in caves. But, um, you know, m most normal people just wouldn't really consider going to the coast unless they had business there until things started to change in the, I guess it, it was in the 17th century because in 1626, a lady called Mrs. Farrer discovered a mineral spa at Scarborough. Scarborough's on the Yorkshire coast, up on the northeast of England. So not only did they have this mineral water that people could come and drink, um, but they were right next to the sea. The spa was literally, the water was coming out of the cliff. So in the first instance, people were going there and the sea just was a minor, well, frankly, inconvenience because it stopped you getting <laughs> to the spa when it was high tide. But over time, people came to recognise that actually the water of the sea itself might be just as beneficial as the spa water coming out of the, the spring, the natural spring. Literally, the doctors would write books about these things and whatever ailed you would be uh, cured by going to the seaside spa towns like bath um tunbridge wells in kent buxton in derbyshire they're kind of losing their allure by this point you know they're a bit old hat ah. so yeah the seaside offers a bit of novelty something different in that whole transformation from humble fishing village to seaside this is a city these days, there were some really key figures. And among them were the dippers who administered the medicinal cure. So they are like the kind of nursemaids of the doctors who send people to the seaside to get better. So it sounds like taking the waters at one of these kind of traditional interior spa locations was really a fundamentally different experience than doing so at the seaside. Yes, it was. I mean, it was sort of it, the seaside was founded, the, the institutions there all kind of transferred from inland. But it was just a different venture because of the sea being such a different location and context. And and in a spa, you know, if you went to bath, the water is nice and warm. <laughs> it's quite relaxing. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and the sea, if you're not used to it, can be intensely scary and you know people just had no kind of background of putting themselves in the water you know the only way you do that if you it was if you were on a boat and you fell overboard and you were drowning you know people that, didn't that would know not be how a to very swim. relaxing healthful experience well so okay so tell us tell us then how the dippers emerged to address this problem so the idea of the medicinal cure is a really important bit um, in this whole story because the the doctor having looked at your condition would then prescribe the the way that you take the treatment and that would be a series of dips over a course of weeks or maybe months and you wouldn't just be dipping in the water you would be drinking it but it's an emetic you know it, it's all about cleansing your system you would start off with that and then you would go into the water with the help of the dipper. And when you say with the help of the dipper, lay that out for us. What exactly did the dipper do? So the dipper's job was essentially to make the patient take to the water, which wasn't necessarily like we've just said that this is not likely to be certainly in the first instance, a very comfortable experience. So the dipper is there to kind of make the patient enter the water and then actually physically hold them underneath. Oh, that sounds horrible. <laughs> it's interesting that accounts of it do recognize that once you get used to it, it's actually, it's like a kind of health reboot. And actually it could become enjoyable despite its quite obvious flaws. If it was totally hideous, it just wouldn't have taken off. So there, there clearly was some kind of benefit. It's like, it's like, um, the worse it is, the better it is for you. Yeah, I guess so. What doesn't what doesn't kill you? I mean, there's there's no doubt. I mean, anyone who's ever 
swum in the in the ocean knows there there are few feelings more exhilarating than when you pop back up, right? Just the way you feel, it's it's remarkable and it is unique. Uh, so I, I suppose even if there was a moment of fear or discomfort while plunged under, someone who was familiar with this procedure would know that there was there was a better phase to come <laughs> yes I think so I think it's that why people enjoy cold water wild swimming these days it's the same it's the same fundamental idea that the cold on your body the effect that it has in actually sort of making you more alert and awake and yes. um, you know that was the kind of um the idea behind the whole process I think right okay well let's Let's really go down to the, to the, well, I can't say down to the ground, well, down to the sand. Let's put ourselves <laughs> right into the world of the English Regency period dipper. Just please walk us through a typical day for one of these peoples. Let's just start with when they wake up. What are they thinking about? Even though this is a service job and these are relatively, they're, they're lowly born people who are, are doing this job, nonetheless, one of them in particular became very famous, which means that we do have this kind of information about about how her day would have gone. And I'm, it is a her, it is a woman um, in, in almost all cases. For a oh, okay, so it's a woman's job. Okay. It is a woman's job, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, this lady was called Martha Gunn. And she was really one of the pioneers because in Brighton, there was a key doctor called Dr. Richard Russell, who wrote a book in 1750, which was called A Dissertation on the Use of Seawater in Diseases of the Glands, particularly the scurvy, jaundice, king's evil, leprosy and the glandular consumption. So, you oh know. my. Yeah, yeah, everything. Um, so um, he brought together all these case studies and he had influential patrons, customers, patients, call them what you will. Um, and um, so this really helped put Brighton on the map. And at the same time as he is publishing this, Martha Gunn is sort of in her 20s. She comes from uh, a just a, a fishing family. She's got no education, but she sees the potential of this new fashion this trend for people with money coming to her town to take the water and so she sets her up as sets herself up as a dipper oh so, so she's an entrepreneur she is totally an entrepreneur absolutely I, I need to get that. this across because she's she's brilliant yes she is she is she is seeing the potential and doing something about it and and you know, it, it could have been a male thing, but it was Martha Gunn who who took on that mantle quite early on to um, to make money in a, in a town where there wasn't much else happening, really. So she was born in 1726. And until the age of 88, she was down on the beach at Brighton at six o'clock in the morning, <laughs> every morning. Wow. So, yeah. So she was standing there in her dipper's uniform which you might imagine that that would be relatively lightweight since her job is basically standing in the water all morning. Sure. But it wasn't any such thing. She was kind of clad in layers of thick serge. I guess six o'clock in the morning is going to be pretty chilly, actually. So that was partly to keep warm. And she always wore a, a sort of cotton mob cap and on top of that a bonnet, which was partly how people recognised her. This was what she wore over her entire career. And um, she was there, as I said, at six o'clock every morning to meet people with her picture. So I guess nowadays in England, we'd call it a jug. But a picture is, you know, something she's she's got her quantity of seawater in this oh, picture okay. ready to pour out to the, the patients. Because the first thing that she's going to ensure everybody does, all of her customers are going to do when they come down to meet her is drink half a pint of seawater before they go into the water. Could they get a chaser of plain water? I just know if I swallow seawater, all I want is something to to just remove the taste from my mouth immediately. Exactly. Yeah. I know. And people did say that it made them extremely thirsty for the rest of the day. But the chasers that they came up with were kind of equally disgusting because one of the other doctors around that that time suggested that putting some new milk, fresh oh, milk. Oh no, they, that's I know that's, that's much worse than just leaving it as it was. <laughs> it's so disgusting, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. And Another idea later in the 19th century was to put beef tea with it, 
or port wine. I mean, well, I that think actually it sounds better. It's more like it would mix with, uh, let's just say seawater, we could call it savory, right? <laughs> so. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I think I did read about one um, idea of putting it with gin, which I think would be my Oh, that sounds one. lovely. But, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if you're going to have to have it, you might as well have something nice with it. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the first job of the dipper. Um, and Martha and the, the sort of team of women around her would be there to give people this this first element of the cure and then each person would have their different prescription of how much time they needed to spend in the water and it's not a question at this time of just walking into the water paddling anything like that and, and we're not talking about swimming either this is a, a kind of ritualized way of entering the waves and it requires equipment the equipment is quite sizable we're talking about um, something called a bathing machine but they were a british invention um, as a way of i guess if you think that the people in the first instance they are coming to the seaside because they think they've got something wrong with them so it's sort of like an invalid carriage in a funny way. But what it is, mm. is like a, if you know what a, a, a beach hut looks like or a kind of a, just a garden shed, you know, it's like, like walls. a changing room on wheels kind of thing. I mean, is that that is absolutely it. Yeah. Yeah. It's four walls, a gabled roof, four wheels, and it is pulled by a horse into the water and it's pulled oh my, in by a horse so the, the horse had to get wet too <laughs> that's right yes yeah it's not the best life for a horse but um the the bathing machine would be pulled into deep enough water that when you stepped out of the the bathing machine down a set of stairs and the the dipper would be there at the the end of the bathing machine to greet you you're already in fairly deep water so this is not paddling at all and then the the dipper's main function really happens at this point and I mean, bear in mind that you're paying for this service as well. It's, it's quite something, really. Um, whilst you're in the bathing machine, you're going to be getting undressed. There aren't bathing suits in a kind of modern sense. They haven't been invented yet. And bathing suits are a subject to fashion. And the idea at this point is that nobody should see you, really, as you're going into the water. So there's no right. point in having anything fashionable. Sure. Very often we're talking about a kind of sack, um, you know, sort of <laughs> with arms and gathered around the, the neck. So ladies would wear these and they would just ride up in the waves. You know, there's, there's nothing holding them at the bottom. Failing that, they would just bathe completely naked. So they might tie their hair up. Okay. Well, the hair might have added to the modesty, depending on if it was down or not. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there was something quite sexy about seeing a woman's hair down at that point. You can imagine sort of onlookers at the top of the beach with their, their I telescopes. can't imagine, really. Oh, oh yes. telescopes. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, there, there was a bit of a problem with peeping toms around this kind of period because um, men would take to the seaside and they might be pretending to observe the shipping as it passes oh, yeah. by mm -hmm. on the waves. And, Ship and spotters, uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Actually, they're training their telescopes on the ends of the bathing machines where these dippers are waiting for their ladies to come out uh, um, scantily clad, as it were. Now we get to the fundamental process of dipping that gives the dipper her name. As I've said, this is not meant to be um, an enjoyable experience in the first instance. People are, you know, that, that first crossing of the the beach in the bathing machine there are no windows to stop peeping tom seeing inside so it's dark it probably smells quite musty and it's bumpy and then you arrive and there are waves splashing against the stairs as you come out and you've never been into the sea before and there's this doughty looking lady there saying come on in dearie oh um, my gosh yes <laughs> <laughs> it sounds quite terrifying i'm gonna say I, I think it was you know people who've written about their first experiences do describe it in that way um and it is a it's a cold water shock therapy essentially so the dipper is going to cajole you into the water but if it doesn't work and you're still sort of trembling on the the edge of the bathing machine she will come and grab hold of you <laughs> and pull you in because this is for your own good Karen um, you need to come into the water because the doctor has told you that this is going to help 
whatever it is that ails you. So the dipper is going to take you into the waves and she is going to look for a nice big wave coming at you and she is going to take your shoulders and she is going to push you physically under the water. Your eyes, your ears, your nose are kind of assaulted by the icy water and yet she's still holding you firm there. You, you're struggling to get free. You're struggling for breath. Your heart is racing and I think you're panicking by this point. And suddenly she pulls you up. That's a dip. And she gets a big hug and a kiss and a thank you, I bet. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's probably a lot of coughing, spluttering, crying at this point. Um, but she's done her job. But it's really interesting that there's a description by um, Fanny Burney, who was a member of the court of King George III. And, and she took her first dip in Tynmouth in Devon in 1773 so a bit before the, the Regency period but you know definitely this is the same experience and she was told to go at sort of break of dawn down onto the beach and the women there lived in such poverty that um, they couldn't afford horses to pull the bathing machines into the water they pushed them in themselves these women were, were fishermen's wives and they were made of pretty hard stuff and Fanny described her first experience and she said I was terribly frightened and really thought I should never have recovered from the plunge I had not breath enough to speak for a minute or two the shock was beyond expression great but after I got back to the machine I presently felt myself in a glow that was delightful it is the finest feeling in the world <laughs> and will induce me to bathe as often as will be safe Oh, what, that that is a ringing endorsement. And Isn't it's something it? that anybody in this day and age who's been in the ocean can relate to. We all have felt that way coming out of the ocean. That's it. Exactly. So something that is horrible and terrifying to start with, it does have that benefit and, and you can feel it straight away. And so I think that's a really interesting account of it on the face of it, it, it just sounds like a, a hideous experience that these dippers are, are doling out every morning. But quite clearly, it became something that, that people valued and were prepared to pay for. And that's why the job existed. You, you mentioned fishermen's wives and that these are sort of tough old broads mainly, right? Um, so what, what kind of person succeeded in this job? What skills did they need? Yeah, they had to be pretty tough um, because essentially they are, their job is just about standing in the water for several hours every morning and they have to be good at sort of customer relations as well because you know they this is a service job they have to be good at that but they have to have real strength of character as well and they have to know the location where they work as well so the being fishermen's wives daughters um growing up in this seaside location means that they have a real feel for the coastline because they can't let people go out in dangerous conditions they have to know about when it's the when the weather is too rough they have to know the best parts of the beach because you don't want someone to to lose their footing or slip or you know perish the thought of somebody actually drowns while you are doing this you know that's that's the the real risk of this you have to be in control have you ever seen evidence of that happening? Did, did dippers ever lose their patience? I don't think they did, actually. Rather, they could be the lifesavers on the beach where, where such a thing didn't exist. I mean, the, the, the kind of closest parallel in a funny way is a modern lifeguard. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to ask. That, that's immediately where my mind went. I mean, no Baywatch situation here, but so... Yeah, no skimpy, no skimpy <laughs> swimwear at all. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, they're kind of taking people to the brink of a near-drowning experience, and I don't suppose there is a single lifeguard in the world who would advocate that. But right. nonetheless... <laughs> nonetheless... Um, they were there keeping a watchful eye on everyone who was in the water oh, okay. and, and they were proficient in in saving people so that I mean it's a bit later on but the the dipping tradition continued through the 19th century and there was one particular woman a, a lady called Mary Wheatland who became a dipper at the age of 14 and she retired age 64, which I mean, talk about strength of character and kind of longevity. It's a long career for what she was doing. In that time, she saved 30 lives and was awarded <gasps> wow. two medals. 
of medals at by, by local jur, uh, jurisdictions or something like that or, I, I, mean, I think there was a yeah yeah there was a kind of society for saving lives and um yeah so she was recognized for this um amazing achievement and i think on a small smaller scale dippers were doing this everywhere it was part of their job to ensure the safety of their of their patients and of their beach, of the beach at large, were they paid for that? And and uh, you know, I'd I'd love to know about how they were paid anyway for what they were hired to to, to be at the beach doing. Yeah, well, I mean, there wasn't a beach culture in the way we think of it now, so there wouldn't have been people just sort of sprawling over the beach in the the early nineteenth century, um, or people at the water's edge particularly. The way that bathing was monetized from very early on, so so that. The, the way that you had to do it was to hire a bathing machine. And usually oh, as okay. part of that, the, the dipper was part of your price. So you usually negotiated, oh, there was a set fee for the bathing machine, which included the dipper. And in the case of Martha Gunn, we we're talking about her as an entrepreneur. Well, she earned enough money to buy her own bathing machine. So she was in control of the whole operation. Oh, that's how to do it. Good for her. That's it, exactly. So, um, so you would pay for per dip usually, just over a shilling probably, which is not a massive amount, but it's enough to make it something that your working man in the street could not afford. It's kind of like uh, going to a spa resort for for a day where it's something that you are are paying above and beyond. It's not an essential. It's something that you're paying paying extra for. You know, so um, it's difficult to give it a, a an actual monetary value today because um, transferring the currencies and stuff doesn't really translate to the experience. But but it was definitely a luxury thing, even though it's it's supposed to be for your health it's not something that um that all people could afford but you could hire a bathing machine for a kind of season of six weeks so you could sign up for your oh, entire okay. cure so, like like hiring a car kind of yeah thing. kind of yeah yeah and actually the cost of building uh, and owning a bathing machine would probably be about comparable to the cost of buying a new car these days oh wow okay all right big money yeah, so for someone like a, a dipper to actually be able to purchase their own, that's quite that's a you know that's a significant investment. And at some places, people banded together in order to buy these because they were so important in actually kind of um, creating the right circumstances for their little resort to take off. Because for the fashionable people to come, they expected to have bathing machines and dippers and everything that went with that experience. So, um, yeah, it was a sizable investment on the part of the bathing machine owner. Um, and so they had to recoup that. And so the, the, the cost of the, the dips would sort of reflect that, I guess. Could you tell me a little bit more about how dippers worked together at, say, a given resort? Were they competing against one another or were they kind of collaborative in a way? If we go back to the um, example of Martha Gunn, now the reason that she is so famous is because she did have um, sort of royal connections because she was there at the beginning of the the um, of Brighton becoming uh, a fashionable and um, successful place. She was able to once she had sort of worked out the 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 rituals and the 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 way that this dipping was going to to happen. She brought together lots of other women. So interestingly, I've got in my collection a little trade card that it says it's advertising the um, old established bathers of Brighton. And top of that is Martha Gunn. And she is, oh. <laughs> yeah, she is the leader. And she is, she's, she almost becomes a national celebrity in effect because Brighton is the seaside resort where royalty go, aristocracy go, they actually ask for her in person. But of course, she can't she can't deal with everybody. So she's wily enough to get this group of friends and other women. There's about 10 of them on this business card. And so they operate the whole venture. The men who are in charge of the bathing machines, who they dub as careful men, um, bearing in mind careful that this trade. Men. 
Yes, well, this, this trade card is addressing itself to ladies, so very specifically noble and aristocratic women who might want to know that the men who they might have to come into contact with would be careful and good horses as well. So no, no misbehaving. Um, and um, so the, this group of women are working together as a team and they are in charge of the men. The men's names aren't mentioned at all. Um, it's, it's the women who are, are running the operation. And interestingly, this band of women, when a competitor set up in Brighton on the same beach, putting their own bathing machines at a different spot, they took out an advertisement in the local press saying how far superior their service was, how long they had been going, which I think was about 30 years by that point. You know, they're really putting down these competitors saying, you know, don't go to them because they don't know what they're doing. We are the, the, the old established bathers of Brighton, you know, come to us. So there is this competition, but there, it is collaborative as well. So, um, yeah interesting dynamics happening on the beach really interesting and were there other venues in which women could have this kind of economic clout at this time that's it isn't it I mean that's that's why it's quite surprising and it's not a terribly well-known vocation um and, and in the wider scheme of things it doesn't seem that important but actually the the relationships um with the 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 women and their clients are quite surprising. I mean, it's the kind of thing where um, a comparison might be with seaside landladies, where women are in charge of the accommodation very often. And, and that might be for the same reason, because their men are working, but the women can stay in the sort of domestic sphere of the lodging house and, and take visitors in, but it's their house and they're in charge. So it's another kind of seaside context um, where where the, the, the women are really the ones holding the purse strings and the power. But there's not an awful lot of other jobs where that happens at this period. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting how they set themselves up. And I think also because in terms of the classes mixing in this one is particularly unique because the, the clientele are wealthy and aristocratic and they are undressing and then putting themselves in the hands of these working uneducated women obviously when I say uneducated you know they've got a lot of brains to them but you know they, they come from a very very different background oh, right this would be the like the help this is the downstairs and upstairs mixing in an in a you know tremendously vulnerable nexus of experience <laughs> I think I think that's the word, the vulnerable part of it, yeah. And, and the, the trust that therefore is required there. And I guess that's what, in that trade card, where the, those women, Martha Gunn and her fellow workers, are saying the old established and the, the length of time that they've been working is about their trustworthiness, you know? That, that you are coming and you are putting yourself in their hands and you can trust that they will look after you. And that's, I think that's really important because of that vulnerability, because they are going to see you when you are scared, you know, when you are dripping yeah. wet. I mean, like nobody else has and... ever seen you, frankly, as an adult, right? Let's be exactly, honest. Exactly. So, so that, that creates this really interesting sort of situation, which just, just doesn't exist in, in any other context, really, that I can think of. And so how was the Dipper viewed by the public at large? I mean, clearly the clients greatly valued the service they provided, but what about people who might just know about this phenomenon? Yeah, so um, in a funny way, someone like Martha Gunn, her fame transcended the the kind of her, her low status, really, because she was famous as... Um, I think she did kind of, she didn't um, dip the Prince of Wales when he was young, but she was there and knew him and, you know, was, was pictured in the popular press with him in sort of satirical cartoons and, and wow. her, yeah. And her figure was turned into something called a Toby jug, which is a kind of um, souvenir ceramic ware. Um, there were the, all of these, they were very popular for uh, more than a century. They're actually these ceramic vessels with a handle, a pitcher or a jug, 
shaped in the likeness of a famous person. And Martha Gunn. Oh my goodness. So is that like the height of fame at this time or what? I mean, it, it kind it, of is because, yeah, it means people can buy a piece of you. And the fact that um, sort of late 18th century, early 19th century people wanted to buy the likeness of this woman whose job was standing in the sea and pushing people under the waves is quite a remarkable thing, really. Um, so in yeah. the popular consciousness, I mean, the Morning Chronicle dubbed her the high priestess of the bath. Oh. She was so well known. She had this incredible reputation and, and most dippers obviously didn't. And it was because of the association with Brighton and with royalty that, that Martha Gunn had this and because she'd been, been there doing it for such a long time. Nevertheless, each seaside resort, as it emerged around the coast, as, as more people went to the coast to explore this sort of um, the, the health, the, the cure of being by the sea, um, most places did have their own sort of local celebrities, as it were, in the shape of dippers and you would you would come to know their names and you might go back every year and you might see the same person and you'd sort of become familiar with them so in the popular popular consciousness in that respect they are a sort of consistent presence there at the same time they can be really stereotyped and that comes down to that sort of vulnerable relationship i think that that power relationship mm, so mm -hmm. um they would be responsible sometimes and particularly as the the 19th century wore on for kind of introducing children to the sea for the first time in some minds the dipper kind of became this ogre figure you know because um they were pretty weather beaten to look at i think i mean the accounts suggest that they could be young women as well as old women but they were going to be pretty swarthy individuals because of where they worked and they were out in all weathers and they just they'd seen it all before I think so you know if you're a, a, a small little boy and it's your first time uh, at the coast and this is your introduction to to swimming to the seaside um, you know it doesn't matter if you're scared she might try and um, encourage you in to start with but after that you know uh, you're just going in like it or not yes yeah, now you're there stiff exactly, upper lip exactly. <laughs> in the and, water <laughs> and famous people did write about this so um the painter john constable referred to the brighton dippers as those hideous amphibious animals which oh. conjures up quite an image um mm. and then uh, later in the uh, the um 19th century julian hawthorne the son of the american writer nathaniel hawthorne of the, the red letter uh -huh. fame yeah. um he had such a harrowing experience at whitby on the, on the yorkshire coast that he was to claim there is nothing else so terrible in the world to a small naked shivering boy as the british bathing woman oh. and he kind of painted this vision of her as a kind of octopus with tentacles reaching out towards him and grabbing him and dunking him under the water and the kind of being scarred for life by this experience so um the dipper many faceted i think in in the popular imagination that's such a vivid image um so this makes me wonder about accountability I understand that uh, from what you've said that the dipper was following a doctor's prescription that the client had brought to her but was there any kind of accountability? I don't think there was really. I don't think there was a higher authority there other than perhaps, you know, public sentiment. If you were too rough and you got a reputation for being horrible, I guess you just wouldn't get any clients. Yes, yeah, like having a bad review on yeah. online or something. No, nobody's yeah. gonna, gonna ask for you. Exactly, I, and I think that is the ultimate sanction in this kind of case um because there will all be always be other people ready to take your place if you aren't good at your job so i think that's probably where the 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 ultimate sanction comes because even though the doctors might send their patients off to the seaside to see the dippers they weren't there at six o'clock every morning to um you know they were probably in their beds um they they wouldn't have been the ones who would be um keeping track 
And I guess, though, if people, their clients came back and said, oh, that woman at Brighton at Scarborough, she was terrible, then the doctor wouldn't recommend them again. So, so I suppose it's the same thing. It's the reputation, the recommendation. That's where the accountability lies. But you might have to have some horrible experiences before that takes effect. Yeah, right. And for word to get around. So you've mentioned some of the kinds of of patients that the Dippers served. Could you tell me a little bit more about um, kind of any understanding you have of age and and gender breakdowns among them? I mean, the Dippers were all women. What, What was the mix of the patients? Well, generally, you could have a female Dipper who was um, assisting a male bather. But as said male, you might get laughed at. There might be a sort of sense of, you know, oh, you can't go in on your own. There is sort of accounts of the time that... Oh, could men go in on their own if they wished? Well, there were male assistants as well. Not oh, many okay. of them. Okay. So, so, and they didn't sort of work in the same way. And the dippers were were really sort of queens of the the beach. But, but, um, the Prince Regent did have apparently a swimming teacher called um, John Smoker Miles at Brighton. So, so they did exist, but they weren't um, they weren't so obvious on the beach. And there was this sort of sense that you just had to face up to it more on your own. Um, but, but men could have. Um, female dippers but the reverse could not be accounted for you know you couldn't be uh, a female going in your bathing machine to meet a male assistant at the other end that simply was utterly scandalous yeah (laughs) yes exactly there was a there was a case I was reading about where um a certain part of the beach at Brighton they couldn't actually pull the bathing machines up and down each time that somebody wanted to go into the water because the shore was just too pebbly so they they couldn't do that so they came up with this um, other system where there would be kind of burly local men who would carry the patients from the top of the beach into the bathing machine waiting to uh, then go into the water um, but this was described as really being quite a scandalous thing, not just actually the practice itself, but <laughs> it was the, the female reaction actually to this. So um, there was a, a sort of roving reporter, a chap called Dr. Granville, who reported on all the um, spa and seaside resorts around Britain in the 1850s. And he said that he was absolutely shocked by the way that these women clung to the men carrying <laughs> the bathing machines. Which, that's, that's rather nice. So they were having, they were quite enjoying it, you know, but actually on a sort of moral social level, this was, this was not thought very proper in it. And it's not something that sort of happened at most places. So, so there was a different, there was definitely this gender division um and yeah men were expected to use bathing machines but if you could just go in and deal with it on your own um you were a stronger individual clearly and it was a sort of a show of of your character really so Catherine how did the role of dipper evolve from this time period this regency time period and when did it finally disappear so the Dipper was a kind of ever-present figure, a character, if you like, of the seaside around the British coast throughout the 19th century. And I guess that her role as administering a seaside cure was something that diminished over time because there was far less necessity for people to go to the sea for their health. I mean, people went because it made them feel better, but they weren't going because a doctor said that they had to be plunged underwater in the same way that they had previously. They went to have fun. Um, Mm. But bathing machines did continue throughout the 19th century to be the way that that sort of society expected people to enter the water. It wasn't simply permissible to take your kit off on the beach and run into the waves like we do now people (laughs) people just didn't do that Um, and it actually required the removal of bathing machines and the sort of moral codes that were tied up with them for the for the dipper and and that whole kind of structure of beach use to disappear so 
from the late 19th century, about the 1890s, an increasing number of British people were traveling abroad and they noted how, you know, in, in France and Belgium on the nearby continental coasts, um, people managed on their own. <laughs> you know, they had bathing machines, but they also dressed appropriately. The, the key thing to, to note here is that the naked bathing from the um, early 19th century continued for men in particular um, throughout the 19th century. Yeah, so that beaches were highly segregated places because men continued to want to, to let the kind of mineral salts of the water into their into their skin so um, men and women had to bathe in separate areas of British beaches up until around 1900. Oh wow okay and only at that point did the, the big resorts accept that if men wore suitable clothing um, suitable bathing costumes sort of you know neck to knee coverings mostly <laughs> um, then they could bathe then everybody could bathe together and this was, there was a campaign, amazingly, there was a 19th, a newspaper campaign in the 1890s to try and get what they called mixed bathing. So it meant that a father oh, could teach bathing. his daughter okay. to swim. Yeah, um, because that wasn't possible before, because a father and a daughter would have to be on separate parts of the beach. I mean, it's kind of nutty, but it all comes from this, from just well, the no, way. It makes sense. I, yeah. it, it actually does make sense. So that, So the way that the beach etiquette if you like, had developed from the time of the early dippers onwards, um, meant that the, the beach was still very segregated. And it was only when suitable clothing could be worn, then that the, it wasn't a problem to walk across the, the beach and actually just step into the water yourself without the need for a bathing machine, without having this cumbersome um, changing room as a, as a kind of um, intermediate stage so you could actually then hire a beach hut essentially a bathing machine without wheels at the top of the beach you could get changed you could hire that for the short period of your dip or in, indeed you could hire it for a day um, and then you could walk from there to the sea and you could dip swim do whatever you wanted and, and suddenly the modern age of beach life is born because then this is where um, fashions come into bathing costumes. This is where people begin to sit on the beach in their beach attire and, and they don't worry about people seeing them. So now the dipper is completely redundant because there's a greater independence. There's not this sense that you need help to enter the sea. The bathing machines last in this country up until the second world war quite incredibly you could still oh, it see is them. incredibly <laughs> yeah you could still see these sort of antique machines um on beaches around the uk until 1939 but that was that was a kind of that drew a close on everything everything um had to be moved off the beaches because of the threat of invasion and the bathing machines never came back oh and interesting okay as an archaeologist, I just can't help but think about how the sea was always, I mean, from antiquity, uh, certainly right up until this time, was not a place that you would go for any sort of cure, much less pleasure. I mean, it was really a place of fear and anxiety. It's, it's dangerous. It's where shipwrecks and sea monsters and natural disasters were, were waiting to befall you. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the sea and the seaside really came to be a place of healing in the popular imagination. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the sea just wasn't a place, unless you had business there, people, you just wouldn't go there. But, but there is this sort of thread in romantic aesthetics and late 18th century thinking about sort of, the, the in, immensity of the sea and the kind of sublime qualities of it that really does feed into the kind of um, changing social ideas about what it means to be on the on the periphery of, of the country. So um, the, the medical cure is absolutely key as a reason to make you go to the seaside. But once you're there, once you've actually undertaken your dip in the morning, 
then what do you do for the rest of the time? And this is where the, the kind of the seaside element actually comes into being. So we're not talking about the coast, we're talking about an invented place. The seaside is a human invention. It isn't that barrier between land and sea. It is is what we do with that space. The seaside ah, right. is, is a specific right. location. Right. I was just going to say, it's fascinating to consider the beach as sort of the result of transforming a natural place into something utterly unnatural, <laughs> right? That is absolutely it, isn't it? Because it's what we do there that determines our sense of what the seaside is because you can go to a strip of sort of cliffs and dramatic coastline and feel something quite different to if you go to a built up area of the seaside sort of in inverted commas, which is really quite different because it's all built up on these generations of people visiting and from the first instance taking the cure, but then creating these pleasure resorts around that which has right. has sort of brought the seaside into being as a as a place of leisure a destination where you know you can get away with things that you can't inland there's that sort of sense of otherness to the seaside which is really important and that comes out from the 18th century um in the way people start to appreciate the sea view actually just standing on the shore looking out to sea and actually sort of feeling the the terror and the immensity and looking forward to it into you know the wider world and experiencing that as something good rather than something that um you know you should shy away from because prior to the sort of 18th century the people that lived on the coast the the, the fishermen um they would build their houses facing away from the sea because they knew oh. yeah they knew what damage it could cause yeah they knew yeah. how dangerous it was they didn't want to come back and look at that great mass of water that they they aren't they're living on i was just gonna say they see plenty of that on the job and and probably That's sometimes it. are happy to make it home after a yeah, day at work absolutely so they're they're feeling sort of a, a more coziness looking towards the land and, and being back like you say but but then in the it's visitors who come with a different sort of literary and cultural perspective from urban areas having sort of imbibed this romantic um ideals um from the likes of edmund burke etc um on the sublime and the picturesque um these are currents in romantic philosophy that they then apply and, and painters are doing this at the same time they are they're sitting on the coast with their easels and painting seascapes in a way that's never happened before there's a sense oh. that this element that this this natural space is something of wonder. Wow. Oh, this has been incredibly fascinating. Catherine, thank you so much. Uh, your, your account of Regency English seaside experience and, and the way it was really mediated by the Dippers um, really is, is so surprising in so many ways. And I'm just struck by how you describe it as this place of unique playfulness and, and freedom in this culture, in this time. It, it sounds like it was a freedom that really upended customary social ideas like gender roles and, and traditional architecture and what people really thought should be at the beach and how one should act at the beach and in the sea itself. Thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. It's been really lovely talking to you. If the work of the Brighton Dippers and others like them reflected the Regency period's medical and social norms, it also marked the beginning of a long evolution in how people perceived the seaside and behaved on this liminal space between land and water. Once a place of mystery and fear, the seaside became a place of revitalization, of escape, relaxation, even reinvention. As Catherine said, 
the sense of otherness that had always existed in humanity's view of the ocean and the seaside began to shift. Suddenly, feeling small next to the immensity of the sea wasn't colored by fear, but by a sense of wonder and possibility. This was key in shaping the cultural and economic touchstones of the seaside that we all know and yearn for today. Until next time, thanks for listening. Follow today's guest at Seaside Ferry on Twitter and Instagram. And be sure to check out her website at katherineferry.co.uk. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Overtime Series. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe.